episode of the Drawn to Scale podcast. I'm your host, Pablo Cortez. Today, it's going to be me and our guest, and that is David Fletcher. Uh, David Fletcher is a landscape architect and owner of San Francisco-based Fletcher Studio. David's formative education in field biology and fine art has created an eclectic foundation where urban ecology, pop culture, and the California landscape intermingle with the everyday. David has worked in a range of different design applications, including video games, which we'll, we'll get into, uh, public art, and speculative environments. David, thank you for taking the time. Uh, how's it going? It's good. Thank you so much. Um, it's beautiful here in San Francisco today. Been a little chilly up until now, but we're in our, our new office, which we opened up a couple months ago. And everybody's back physically in the office, which is really a great thing. Well, David, uh, thanks again for joining us. And I, I do want to get into um, some of your your, your work, um, but I think we can start off by maybe sort of giving us some background on Fletcher Studio, how it came to be, the type of work you guys are doing, and sort of your overall company culture, if you can get into that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I started in landscape architecture. I was originally um, doing art for the most part. Like, that's what I was studying. I lived in, I don't, I'm not going to give you a full history, but like lived in Europe and I was a chef one time and then um, discovered kind of human ecology. I think geography really got interesting and then field biology and went to undergrad at UC Davis um, in ecology but then routed into landscape architecture and into art. So I got separate degrees. And I always was, I was doing fine art, or not fine art, sorry, um, public art for the most part, installation-based kind of conceptual work um, that mostly had to do with ecology. I kind of made these big career moves always right when there was some kind of you know, economic crash. So at that time, it was like the savings and loan SNL kind of crashed and then later 2008 was when I moved here to San Francisco and started a practice and quite literally knew nobody. You know, maybe I, a couple people I knew that had moved out of the city. And so it was interesting because it's super ground up, like really, really, really ground up. I was also teaching. So I, I taught at USC, was the assistant director, assistant chair at Otis College, um, taught at the GSD and SciArc and some other, mostly in architecture programs, was teaching at CCA for, so I was straddling academic and um, practice and very slowly kind of built up, you know, a practice. Did a lot of competitions. So I did a lot of competition work. There was no work, you know, 2008, 2009. We were lucky to have one or two small projects from referrals from architects in LA and very, very lucky. And so myself and graduate students and friends, you know, would get together and just do competition after competition. And I think I did the two years, 2008 to, to 2010, did something like 12 competitions. International, big scale, small scale, you know, just kind of went for it. And that was a really amazing process. How long has Fletcher Studio been open? business yeah I would say since 2004 would probably would be pretty accurate we're a, a smallish to medium-sized office about uh, right now we're about 12 people and we'll always be you know more of a boutique smaller um, office is in my mind although 
we're very busy right now. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, what types of works are you taking on type of project? It's really cool. We're doing a, well, we only do, um, we don't do residential work, although we'll do what we call low end residential. So if a friend or somebody, a neighbor, that kind of a situation, no problem. We, we end up doing that local work a lot right now of housing work, public parks, streetscapes, um, science and technology work. We're doing a fair amount of work in South San Francisco right now, um, which is kind of exploding in the science and technology. So campus work, uh, which is really actually an amazing place to, to operate. Some school work, you know, elementary schools. Um, I want to do more. I went to community college at one time, Santa Monica College. It was an amazing school and really set me on my life course for sure, inspired me. And so it's not so much giving back, but it's more I'd like to work in community college world, to be honest, just because it's such a pivotal and transformative environment for people. Uh, waterfront work a little bit. We also have a pro bono part of our practice where we set aside every year 4% of our budget as an actual separate account for what's called hope and space. And you, people can apply online um, and we get, we get maybe six a year and we don't turn anybody down at this point. Um, and for what that is, is in part to help um, neighborhood leaders to help people that have a public space like a vacant lot or, you know, who knows what, a paper street that they want to convert into a park, get grants. So we do all the visuals, put together grant applications for them, um, 3D model it, have community process. And so we're right now working on a large playground in Rwanda, which is part of a new um, kind of housing project that's there. A uh, few other projects here in the city that are really pretty amazing. I guess I can, if we can share um, maybe how people can apply to that right now or how. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's through our website right now. We have a separate, um, we have a, a separate URL for it. Eventually it'll bust off and it might turn into a nonprofit. But right now um, it's on the right side of our uh, menu bar, you know, on our website, it's pink and then it gets you directly to that portal, explains what it is, shows work that we've done in the past, shows work we're doing now. And then right below is FAQ, and then you can apply. And the application comes to admin at Fletcher Studio. So if somebody were to apply in 10 minutes, we'd get the application in 12 minutes, you know? Uh, that's, that's, that's really cool. That's, that's, uh, I, I don't know if I've heard of a studio doing that. Yeah, we're doing a panel on it, hopefully, at ASLA. We're trying to propose a panel that has, because in architecture, it's a little more common. In landscape architecture, less so. And so we had done so many little projects, you know, of like helping people or projects that started like that with no money that um, we were just like, oh, well, let's just formalize this and let's have a budget for it, set something. It's interesting because as a business move, it really resonates through communities and it creates a lot of goodwill through these projects. Because they're public, you often interface with planning staff, city staff. You create relationships and work comes back 100%. So we've done like a little parklet for an HIV AIDS support group here in the city, right? And it was a community process. We were, met with them, met with planning, got relationships. And that three years later ended up 
in a commission, I'm pretty positive, with those exact same people to do the entire public realm plan for Dogpatch. And that's led to three big projects that we're working on right now. So it all comes back. It just takes, it's like ripples coming from the shore going to distant islands. They just take a little bit longer to come back. It's that time to kind of uh, get those relationships going and, and that, that, that trust, right, that you can move forward with the larger scope of that project. That's awesome. Very cool to hear. Let's make a shift uh, uh, gears a little bit and talk about your work on the video game The Witness. Um, for listeners that aren't familiar, the, the Witness is a uh, video game. Essentially, it's a uh, it's a, an adventure game. You you you're in this island and you're walking around solving puzzles. There's natural and man-made landscapes and objects that you get to walk around in and, and explore. Um, David, you had a little uh, some input into the development of that game. Um, how did how did that come across your desk and were you uh, in that video game space uh, previously as far as experience with game development? Well, no. I mean, I've always played video games ever since I was a little kid, like going back to a Commodore 64 computer, you know, and um, even doing some simple coding to like make a hangman game and, you know, just silly stuff playing. I fed so many quarters into video game machines. And then even now I play games every day, essentially, um, as, as much as I can. Um, big kind of adventure games and also uh, shooters and things like that. I just, it's really cool. The community is cool. Um, <clears throat> so how we got into it was, I think we were approached by Dana Van Buren, who's an architect who knew the video game developer, Jonathan Blow. And I think that she had, she knew of us um, and she approached us to, con to work on the island. And um, her, she was, they were doing more of the structures and the buildings. And what it, when it was presented to us, we knew that it was an island. We knew that there were puzzles. We knew quite a few things, but it was very simple. So you can imagine that when we, first got onto the game, there was a flat island with a bunch of like test puzzles that they were doing to try and understand how things might interact. Yeah. Super early. Super early. And Jonathan is, was constantly kind of writing through, you know, what the game was in terms of birth to death. And then at the end of it, it ended up being like there's three ends or four ends to the game. And it just kind of starts to build and you discover new beginnings within it, new places. Um, and so as landscape architects, uh, we, we were especially poised to do that because you could look at this pancake, green pancake of an island, and you could apply to it some simple rules. One is, well, there's a windy side and there's a sunny side and just very basic, simple things. There's a geology. There are biomes, there are ecotones, there are fringes, there's invasive plant material, there are civilizations that have lived here. And so the, what is interesting, I think, and the most, the coolest thing about it, right, was I had mentioned that we had spent so much time doing all these competitions. So you might be doing a competition in 2009 at SciArc that's looking at the future of infrastructure in the city, Los Angeles looking 150 years, 175 years into the future. And in order to do that, 
And I've done that through teaching studios where when you're doing a speculative kind of near future or far future project, you need to almost create a temporal matrix that then just solidifies your assumptions, right? So LA will run out of water by this date. You know, LA oil will be no longer be a thing by this date. So big, big kind of economic global assumptions that then set. So you can, and you may be right or wrong. Your timeline might be right or wrong, but, it, but you have to, you have to stick to it. You know, you have no choice. So when you think about an island, right, and you think about what, you, there's no context. You can't just plop things into it. They all have to have relationships. There's material questions there. Uh, and so we were able to do that exact same thing, but in reverse. So imagine creating this, this speculative future matrix of, well, 25 years, 50 years, 75 years, doing that in reverse, going back 50 years, 100 years. So we created a structure that was then assumed that there were three civilizations that had lived on this island. And it then speculated about the evolution. It speculated, for example, about how did they get metal? You know, how did, how did this stuff... So we literally put in all of their infrastructure, whether they be rills and how they can conduct water, reservoirs, these kinds of things, and then overlaid those three things in plan and then saw how, then speculated about how subsequent or successive civilizations and people might have interpreted or reused things. And it became this then really rich thing that wasn't just throwing stuff at the island. How did they get metal? How did they, you know what I mean? And so there's a giant ship that is shipwrecks into the island. And when you look at that ship in the game, it's been cut away and it's been edited and that metal's been used elsewhere for stairs or for other kinds of things. And that's a bit of a weak connection, you know? I mean, but um, then they have a quarry. They have an area where they're making glass. They have a reservoir. They have canals and channels. There's, um, and then there's a whole interior um, underground stuff that happens. And so I think that as landscape architects, again, just to summarize that is that the ability to understand geography, the ability to understand ecology, the un to understand civilizations, sacred spaces, religious spaces, how these things might have evolved. And more, most importantly, the four dimensional conceptualization of how this thing could temporarily have come together so that you can make sense. And when the video game, they don't really care. They're like, we need a windmill. Like, oh, you need a windmill. Well, what is the windmill doing? Is it making grain or is it making energy or how are they using this? How does it fit? They're like, we don't really care. We just need a windmill. And so um, then fitting the puzzles into the logic of the space was, um, was really great. When you when you play the game, it's you know you get to explore these different areas and all these different elements, and uh, it's it's cool to think that that much thought went into what those areas not only are doing now, but how they got to be right and where it came from and potentially where it's it's going or how it got there. Um, especially if you're thinking talking about going back hundreds of years, right, with the civilization sort of uh, uh, working on this on this uh, this piece of land. Um, I think one thing that has been sort of talked about recently is this idea of going fully digital world, right? Where 
people are buying digital real estate, right, to develop um, that sort of thing, the metaverse. Um, what are your thoughts on the future of those environments, um, you know, as they become accessible to wider audiences? Do you see landscape architects helping to essentially develop digital real estate? Is it, do you think that's where things are going? Um, how would, and how would, what would the involvement be in something like that? I mean, I, I don't, you know, that is a good one. <laughs> I mean, I would hope so, and I would think so. I'm not so certain. I'm not certain how these things translate to spectacular environments or, you know, if, you know, if it's a question of somebody being commissioned to design a park for a virtual space, I can't even think about that, you know? I mean, my, for better or for worse, I think um, not many landscape architects, to my knowledge, are hired by game studios. Usually they've got artists and they've got architects that, you know, are composing these spaces. And there's a lot of automation now in the creation of environments that get generated automatically. Um, and that's fascinating. I think a lot of our real world fundamental kind of stewardship and responsibility and solution-based practice, I'm not certain how that translates to a virtual realm, but I think it's fascinating. Because essentially there's no quote unquote rules to that digital world, right? There's no gravity, water flowing, air, wind, right? There's none of those elements that would require the, that research and development on the landscape architect side of things, right? It's, it's more along the lines of the visual uh, quality of that, of that space. And the logic is there. I mean, if you play Red Dead Redemption, for example, the environments are incredible, beautiful environments. And the biomes and plant materials, it just feels very much like being in a, in a real... If you play The Witcher 3, that's another one that just breakthrough or Elder Scrolls or any of those. I think... I'm not so certain, and I know what we're talking about is alternative, in metaverse or alternative world, right? And real estate um, within that. But I, I find it pretty amazing, like Fortnite, for example, has, I believe the Serpentine, you know, out of London has a museum there that's showing an exhibition that's pretty fascinating that, you know, kids in Fortnite can go to a museum. <laughs> and see art for real and that they are able to code their own little games and place them in this outside of this museum and you could play these games that kids are coding right now and vote on them you know and they kind of get ranked automatically based on who's playing them um the fact that travis scott did a concert that people went to millions and millions and millions of people went to a Travis Scott concert in Fortnite is amazing. And I, I think the more that you kind of think about it is it's really more about that accessibility, right? Having people being able to visit these sites, um, museums, for example, maybe it's parks that are, you know, halfway around the world that you can't you know, practically get there. And that's a key thing back to the witness. So the witness is, puzzle-based game as you know but there's also puzzles in the environment that are anamorphic and so you might for example position yourself at a certain location and a shadow is a hand holding an apple or you see a woman's woman in the stones from a certain position a woman laying down in the water there are all of these 
forms and figures that are also giving clues or solutions to the game or part of the puzzles themselves, which I think is really fascinating. The other thing about the island was um, there are a lot of like landscape architecture in jokes in it, a ton. A ton of things that we wanted to do as a part of very speculative competitions in the past that um, had to do with um, you know, suspended animation or even just masonry. We're fascinated with, for example, Angkor Wat. You have these beautiful ancient ruins that are being held together by the roots of banyan trees, but also destroyed by the roots of banyan trees. And that tension was really interesting in terms of chaos. And introducing that into the island where there's, for example, a temple that has a banyan tree growing out of the middle of it. It's holding the thing together, but also destroying it. And that was a, it's an in-joke. It's maybe a Fletcher Studio in-joke because there was a competition we did. We actually won the competition based on destroying an um, architectural icon in order to save it. And... Um, but there are a ton of other biomes and also um, just pieces that that were like, oh, my God, you know, seeing an image of a certain forest or even on Instagram seeing like, you know, this in Poland, those kind of bent trees, that one forest that's like the bent forest and be like, oh, well, this has to find its way in the game. And even the weeds. Right. So there's a whole logic to to the horticulture, I wouldn't call it logic, but in some cases there are tree houses. We wanted tree houses. And so that in order to do the tree houses, there's two different civilizations that did them. There's the old ones and the old techniques that they use and the newer ones and the new techniques that they use to adapt these trees for habitation. Have you had a chance to work on any other video game stuff or um, environments, um, anything that you have planned or anything like that? Yeah, no, I have not. <laughs> not a lot of landscape architects get involved in games in the first place, right? I, I, in my research, Fletcher Studio has been the only one that I've seen that has been had any kind of uh, input into a, a video game. So it's, uh, not, it's a rare thing. I think we just got really lucky. You know, um, I wrote about it in an article for a book that Brad Cantrell put together um, where I talk about that. I was like, it's kind of a one-off, you know, and it was, it was a fascinating... It, it took seven years... And I had two people working on it full-time for two years, full-time, modeling. So one of the things you should know is that we modeled everything. And on our website, or at least in that article, you can see a progression of the island over time, like how, how it started and how it ended. And we suggested, for example, example the, the mountain, you know, this basalt mountain, which relates obviously to 2000, not um, to Close Encounters. Right. And there's a lot of pop cultural things in there that enabled, you know, um, Close Encounters, you know, the big Devil's Tower. We wanted a Devil's Tower in the project. And the and this is much more interesting is the modelers. They have their own modelers. Right. They had to remodel often what we were modeling in Rhino. So we modeled all of the sand deposition, did the sand and grasshopper. We modeled and oftentimes our we had way too many polygons, so they had to simplify and remodel and reskin what we were doing. The perception, it's, it's interesting, I'm trying my best. I think I did better in the article to describe this, but there's a big divide between a you know, landscape architect and the way they see the space and then 
you know, the gaming public, for example, they didn't, forever didn't want to use basalt because basalt is hexagonal, right? And they felt like when other game designers see the hexagonal basalt, they're going to think that it's low polygon and that they're bad modelers. <laughs> and so there were a bunch of examples like that that were really funny that were kind of more about their industry than about the landscape and kind of navigating that. So you actually worked on the, the 3D modeling part. I, it's not like, yeah, I, I, I was, on my mind, I'm thinking you were delivering sketches and, and drawings, um, but you actually got in there and, and started to show them what that 3D model would look like a little bit. Yep. There was a, um, a huge evolution of the island, and I, there's a matrix that we created because we needed, well, Deanna created actually, to be able to figure out how many projects we were working on at one time. And you'd be working on 32 projects at one time. So you'd be working on the temple, you'd be working on the swamp, you'd be working on the, you know, the shipwreck, you'd be working on the quarry, um, and you'd have you'd have a certain set of assumptions because you've got a space, but the space has a puzzle and the puzzle might be connected to physical objects within that space. And they may change their mind about how that puzzle works. And then you have to change how the space works or how it, you know, or how it, what the experience is. And it was much more than it's extremely processional. You essentially unlock spaces. As you may know, you play the game, right? So you come out of this bunker and the bunker is a ode to Paul Virilio. So the bunker started as like a modernist sort of dwell building. It would have looked with a butterfly roof. It would have looked like it came literally out of dwell magazine, ended up being Paul Virilio bunker, which Paul Virilio, as you know, did the study bunker archeology span about all the bunkers in you know, the, um, in France that the Germans built and how they're kind of falling into the sea. So we knew that, let me give an example, and it's a beautiful example, this evolution of different things. We know that this island, and if you look, oh, I, I'm going to jump around, but I apologize. You know, it's, some of it's coming back to me. How do you design an island, right? How do you do that? And so you look at a bunch of islands, and you look at small islands, and the Azores were the ones that really, went, once we found the Azores, we're like, oh, these are small, these are huge compared to this little silly island, but... Um, this is the most analogous, this kind of landscape. So that became the base of the landscape. And they would say things like, we need a windmill. We need a castle. You know, okay, okay, you need a castle. Therefore, this had some kind of defensive purpose. So we'll, and they're like, you, we, need, we need you to design the space here now. It's a ruins, old castle. We're like, no, 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 let's not design the space. Let's design the old castle and make that, the erosion of that castle create the spaces, right? So that was the logic. It's a temporal logic. We, it's to design within a castle is impossible. How do you design a garden within a castle? No, you design a, the footprint of a castle. You do the floor plan and you erode that. That becomes the spaces. So that was the guiding logic. So if it was a castle at one time, then maybe a subsequent civilization also had a defensive technology. That makes sense. They didn't make a modernist building in the castle they built a bunker and it's if you really think about that's it, kind of a weak logic you know in a way because like why would this little tiny island have a defensive function uh, but if it had a castle okay well now it has a bunker and it adds it adds to the that's the narrative of the not just the, the island but the, the overall story right to the to the to the game right so to, to apply a cultural logic to the random objects that they needed and honestly i don't think 
they really cared whether it was a modernist building or it was a castle. I mean, they cared about the castle, obviously, or a or bunker. They're kind of like, okay, well, it needs to do what we need it to do for the game to function. And there was a mantra on Jonathan's part that had to do with um, purpose, that every single thing in the island really had to have a purpose. It couldn't just be decorative. And there's another rule that circles in the island are sacred. So circles always signify the puzzle. So you can't use circles anywhere, you know, in your design. So we ran into issues of like, well, if we have a cut tree, the stump, the top of the stump is a circle, right? And we were able to get beyond that. But um, yeah, um, so you emerge in this space and you unlock by learning how to solve a simple versions of the puzzles, you unlock another space, then you unlock another space and, and another, and then eventually you'll have free roam of the entire surface, and then eventually you'll be able to go below the ground and continue that. And so if you, that procession really became important so that you, we presented from a perspectival point of view. Also, this relationship between the anamorphic, so as you align in a certain way, the trees come together and form a shape. So simulacra became super important. And then how you're conducting the person's eye, what you want them to see. And I don't want to give anything away. I don't think it's a spoiler. I don't, but this is a journey from birth to death, essentially, the game. And I think he's published that. That's pretty clear. And so he wanted, for example, you to come out of this darkness into the light and then unlock this gate. And as you come out of the gate, there's a little red bush on your right that's supposed to catch your eyes so that above that you see the mountain, which represents death. It re represents the end of life. And so that very kind of tight connection between life and death, I think, was really important. In the landscape, there are all these little cues that are meant to guide people let's say philosophically in inform their journey yeah i think that's one of the one of the when you read any kind of review or any kind of role review of that game that's always something that's brought up right that 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 journey of the of the player that as they experience the um the island itself and and i cover the story overall through the puzzles right it's, it's always kind of brought up david this has been very fascinating to listen to you talk about the, the game and the development and uh, you guys' work over at Fletcher Studio. I, we have, we'll, we'll share your website, the link to the website, um, and then any other, uh, I think if you guys have like an Instagram account, we'll have people kind of connect through there. Um, uh, also, what is the name of your uh, oh, Hope in Space? We'll, we'll link to that. Thank you so much. Well, there is something that you should know about is that we have a resources part of our website that we launched more recently that has um, grasshopper scripts, for example, how they work, that other landscape architects can contact us and we can send them the, the definitions and scripts for grasshopper. These are for people that are emerging in practice that are interested in using parametric tools. But I think that it's an important thing at, you know, as we have these practices, everything's open source at this point. Somebody could come work for you and, you know, walk away the first day with your entire server on a thumb drive. So there's no point in, and there's not, there's a, a lot of consequences potentially for, sh you know, um, sharing. But I think that part of what we are doing with our practice through the Hope and Space and also for other pr practitioners and academics 
to share writing, share our thoughts about an integration of green infrastructure, innovation that we feel we're doing here and there, you know, in that regard, the grasshopper stuff. And so basically a research area that's kind of open source for people. Very cool. We'll definitely have that on there. Cool. Uh, David, thanks again. Thank you and uh, have a good weekend. And thank you for doing this, Paulo. It's really, really cool. Thanks, I appreciate that.